Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is week six of our journey through Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. My name is Philip Coleman. I'll be your host today, and I'm joined today once again by my good friend, Mike Ottenweller. Mike, how are you? I am doing great, and I am stoked to talk about chapter six. I think this might be one of my, if not my favorite chapter of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I agree with you. This is the one that I couldn't wait to get to with our group that meets on Mondays and Tuesdays to discuss in real life. I'm very excited to talk to you more about it as well. It's funny because I have thought before, and I tried to make the argument today in discussion, this chapter by itself should just be like a mini book, like a pamphlet. And then, of course, everybody said, yeah, but if you didn't read the previous five, you're just going to go, I don't know, that sounds really spiritual. I'm not going to do it. So I think it's necessary to couch it among the other chapters, but this is one that really hits hard. And I love that even with it being so practical and pragmatic and that it could just be a pamphlet of things to do, Pete still approaches it from a place of your heart has to be in the right place in order to do it effectively. So yeah, take the tools and go ahead and implement them, you know, one day a week or in your daily office or whatever. I know I'm jumping ahead, but if your heart is in the wrong spot, and I just really appreciate that about this book, he just constantly comes back to your heart for Christ. Yeah. And he makes the book, I think, longer than it could have been. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that to take the time to remind us of where our minds and hearts need to be if we're going to get something out of this that's really going to last. Listener, I'll remind you that this podcast is not a summary of the chapter, nor is it meant to replace your own reading through. And so I recommend that you stop at this point if you haven't already completed chapter six of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. The title of the chapter is Discover the Rhythms of the Daily Office and Sabbath, subtitled Stopping to Breathe the Air of Eternity. I'll also warn you, Mike and I talked for a few minutes before we started the podcast today, and I realized I have a habit of saying fixed hour prayer instead of the daily office of prayer. It's the same thing. I learned about fixed hour prayer before I came to this book, and so that's the category in my mind. If I say that while we're in discussion, I want you to know where we're headed. A basic roadmap of what we're going to try to do today is we're going to approach the chapter in three big chunks. The first chunk will be a discussion around the insufficiency of life without these practices. Why do we need these things? What is it about what we learn from our parents or culture or the business world or college that teaches us a different way of life, what Pete refers to as an insufficient rope in the blizzard? Once we've established that, we'll move into the daily office and we'll try to talk about the benefits of that. Mike and I will do our best to share our experience with that practice, uh, probably good, bad, and ugly at times. And then we'll conclude our discussion today dealing with Sabbath, which is the piece that I'm most excited about. This is the spiritual practice in my life that has been the most transformative, is fighting every week to have a Sabbath. So that's my little preview commercial. We'll get there when we get there naturally. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, Pete opens up with uh, what I thought was a helpful analogy of how farmers maybe of yesteryear had to run um, ropes from the barn to the house and back. Mike, you're from the Midwest, uh, blizzard territory. I'm not. I've, I grew up in Northeast Texas. Is this something you'd ever heard of before? So I get two bingo score points for this one because not only am I from the Midwest, but I'm also a meteorologist. And so his blizzard analogy works on many levels for me in the sense that uh, n not necessarily have I had to do uh, the rope tying to my back door in order to find my way home in a blizzard, but I absolutely can appreciate having worn for many blizzards through my my job that uh, it is a legitimate 
need and a, a, an item that you should not forego if you find yourself in a blizzard and especially if you live somewhere in the central plains. Uh, so yes, this one absolutely uh, resonated with me on many levels and uh, I loved that he tied this into what our life can look like if we're not careful, mm -hmm. if we're not intentional. Uh, it's a blizzard. And I mean, I certainly think in 2022, there's many people out there who can probably relate to life feeling like a blizzard here in Alaska in the midst of December in holiday season and everything. It just feels like things amp up. And so, uh, you know, really finding that rope that God can give us uh, imperative. At the top of page 140, Pete makes the statement that blizzards in our lives begin when we say yes to too many things. Uh, it snowed today, snowed most of the day. It may even still be snowing. I can't tell through the window. I don't think so, but it snowed pretty hard between lunch and dinner time today. And one of my thoughts, because I knew we were going to be recording tonight, I was thinking about this chapter, was how quickly a beautiful snowstorm can turn into something really dangerous and overwhelming. And what I realized about it is, for me, I lose my depth perception. I lose my ability to see very far, and that's when I know, okay, I'm now in over my head. I don't know where I'm going anymore. I don't know where I came from. Any tracks that might be in the snow are filling up so fast behind me that I can't find my way back. I think in that way, the analogy is really poignant for what it means to lose control in our lives. Would you be willing, Mike, to share even one example from your own life, uh, maybe in the last five or so years of a time where all of a sudden the efficiency of the snow that was beautiful and you were enjoying it shifted in your life into a blizzard and you went, okay, I'm suddenly in over my head in a way that I did not see coming. Yeah, I think uh, I think for me it was probably mostly related to work, and we talked about this a few weeks ago when we went through uh, chapter four. Uh, you know, trying to um, do things. I, I think that we oftentimes, you know, try to do things in Christ's name, and we have the best intentions behind it, and we want to take care of people. But just like you said, you know, at the top of the page, saying yes to too many things and getting committed to too many things, it doesn't matter if all of those things are for Christ or in Christ's name or with the right heart behind it. You still are a human being with the parameters that God gave you 24 hours in a day. You need to eat, you need to sleep, you need to drink water, you need to, you know, all the things. And so when you went for me, it was, it was saying yes to too many people in my work environment and over committing myself to the exhaustion of my physical needs, to the exhaustion of my family, to the exhaustion of my spiritual life. So for me, that's really, um, you know, when I had to step back and, and I mean, you know, when you're in a blizzard, I don't think you get a chance to step back, but I realized that I was out there without my rope and, uh, and I lost the footprints. Like you said, I, I, I lost, uh, my sense of, uh, of a lot of things, my sense of reality, my sense of belonging. Um, and so, yeah, that's when I knew my blizzard was upon me. I think one of the dangers of reaching the blizzard stage is we believe the lie all the way up until it starts that we can turn it off. If I get in over my head, I can just pull the plug. If it's too much, if I'm too tired, I can take a vacation day. I can skip out on email. I can let my boss know I'm a little in over my head. And it isn't that easy. I think that's why a blizzard is a good analogy is at the point that I realize I'm in over my head, I've lost control. I've lost the agency to go backwards and to say, I'm not ready. I can't do it. One paragraph below uh, where we were just reading on 140, Pete gives a quick list of uh, things, maybe experiences that we have in general when we are in blizzard mode. And I can just say for me, he says overscheduled, tense, addicted to hurry, frantic, preoccupied, fatigued, starved for time. 
uh, one of the statements that was made today, uh, or yeah, in book club this morning from somebody was the sense of my schedule is totally full and I get to the end of the day and I go, I didn't get anything done. I think that's a good indicator that maybe my life has begun to live me instead of me living my life. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. And I think he actually uses a phrase very similar to that later on in this chapter. Another point on this specific page that uh, just resonated so strongly with me is that we admire people who, mm. who are able to accomplish so much in so little time. And man, I, I, we talked about this in Family of Origin a few weeks ago, but, but even just looking at our society or just whatever we admire about the, you know, I mean, think about how many things, if you're looking at an ESPN screen, how much data is actually coming at you, not only the people on the screen, but also the scroller bar on the bottom and then the scroll bar on the right side. It's just, if we can accomplish so much in so little time, we hold that in such high regard in Western culture, and that's how you end up in a blizzard. That's right. Oftentimes, nobody is there uh, counterbalancing that narrative and saying, oh, sure, Warren Buffett made a million dollars by the time he was 25, but on his way, he divorced four women and doesn't know any of his kids. I mean, I'm using that as an example. I don't know Warren. I don't know his story. I just grabbed that name because I know he's rich and famous. But I think that, that we have to understand that because people are limited, part of chapter four, right? As we go through grief and loss, it's acknowledging that we're limited. If I can embrace that I'm limited, I should expect myself to reach a point where I can't do it all for everybody. It's probably why Pete wrote this book in the order that he did. People who live without limits or try to are just a ticking time bomb in a way. They're, they're one or two crises away from everything falling apart because there's no margin. There's no room to stop and go, oh, one thing went wrong. I have enough energy and attention and time to go fix that. If I do that, I'm probably saying no to a bunch of other stuff that also feels like it's really important and is looming over me if, once I've started to live with no margin. And he talks, about, he talks about that, how we can't stop, how we then start to feel guilty if we do rest. And of course, that's going to you know go into the rest of this chapter here in a few minutes as we get into parts two and parts three. But yeah, the, the idea of any sort of an ism, but this one being, being uh, overwhelmed or completely occupied with... Uh, workaholism or, you know, any addiction, but this one specifically into tasks, into work, into doing just that pervasive sense that I must always be on. I mean, you and I were just joking about caffeine intake a few minutes ago, but it, <laughs> think about, you know, caffeine, obviously coffee, the number one consumed beverage in the world. It, it It's not, not hard to draw the line or connect the dots that that's because we are always trying to do, 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 and be engaged and be on. Yep, absolutely right. Pete says toward the bottom of 140 and into 141 that there is a rope for us, that if we're in the blizzard, we're not without hope. Maybe we've already got out of control, but we, we can grab onto something outside of ourselves that will bring us back to the place we want to be. He specifically uses the word centered, very last word on 140, and rooted at the top of 141. Two words that I think probably describe very few adults and very few even ministers. Centered and rooted. Those are concepts that become objectives for us as we begin to work our way toward uh, these two objectives. Um, I wanted to highlight, I know he works his way through a little bit of his own personal storytelling and, and some anecdote there on 140 and 142, but he says in the opening of the section called Stopping to Surrender, that at the heart of the daily office and the Sabbath is stopping to surrender to God in trust, and that the failure to do so is the very essence of the sin in the Garden of Eden. What an interesting way to navigate what it means to allow God to rule in our lives or to give order to us. I think in some ways it magnifies how big of a deal it is when we don't surrender and we're not resting. 
But there is, if I can be honest, a part of me that goes, ah, is that really what Adam and Eve were doing? Was it was really the big deal that they weren't following God's plan, even in the way that they spent their rest and their time? Was it really about trust for them? Was it really about control? I become convinced that it is, but it did take some time for me to eventually wrap my mind around that. 100% same for me. I, I think without experimenting or diving all the way into these practices, it is so easy to think that they're not about trust. Like you were just saying a minute ago, oh yeah, but I'll catch up on that thing later, or I can stop this whenever I need to and, and you know, pull chalks. But it is, it is, if you start to engage in these and you actually are intentional and start to walk these out for a few weeks, a few months, maybe longer, if you're doing better than I am, then you will start to see <laughs> very quickly that it is completely about trust. Yeah, absolutely. Because what you're practicing is the opposite of everything you've ever been taught to do. You come up with a problem, an issue, probably it exists inside yourself. God, I'm hateful. I'm angry. I'm wounded. I'm sorry. I, I don't believe in myself or I believe in myself too much. And instead of doing, doing, doing to fix, you just sit with that reality with God on purpose, carving out time to acknowledge it, but not wrap your hands around it and try to choke it to death. You, you, you leave that work to God to do. You open yourself for him to do it in you but you don't own the tools that are needed to chip away at your heart and really change you. God does. And you have to wait on him to take that step. And the, the next page, uh, he starts to talk about God's rhythm for us. So now we're on 143, and, and I just loved thinking about that, but it also like, there was definitely cognitive dissonance for me that I was like, wait, what? Like, why is this God's rhythm for me? And it's, it's pretty clearly laid out explicitly in scripture many, many times, but Sensing that, seeing that, uh, and and then recognizing our inherent uh, kind of ad- adversity to that, uh, mm-hmm. going against that, working against that, mm-hmm. that we're contrary to that rhythm uh, so often just in the way that we're raised and our culture and things like that. And then it reminded me as he goes on to talk about how we have to live that out because we are image bearers of God. Mm-hmm. And that made me think of our sermon series on the Imago Day. And just how much this is baked into who he made us to be, this process, the ropes, and what we need as a part of our day-to-day, as a part of our week-to-week, uh, just to really not lose the, the rhythm that he has created us to live by. That's right. It always helps me to remember the way that God set creation up to start with. And when I look at the daily office or fixed hour prayer, whatever you want to call it, I see in a way, like we talked about even in yesterday's sermon, an invasion of heaven back into a place that's been occupied by hell. If what God's enemy wants is for people to build their own kingdoms and make their lives all about themselves, then the pervasiveness of of choosing to embrace and go out of your way to plan for little, small touch points with God or even one whole day with him That is itself a rebellion. It's a rebellion against everybody around you. It's hard to explain. We had great discussion this morning on, okay, if I have a Sabbath, what do I do? How do I practice Sabbath when I fly back to wherever I'm from to be with my parents for the holidays? Am I really going to impose that on all of them? What if my Sabbath is a Thursday and one year Christmas is on a Thursday? And on my Sabbath, I don't do cell phones. Am I not going to take any pictures with my phone of my kids opening their presents? And we batted that idea around. I don't have a a once and for all answer for everybody. Where we landed was you probably have the freedom to move your Sabbath. And if your Sabbath begins to rule your life, it's not helpful anymore. But it is interesting, I think, because this is going to be inconvenient. It's going to feel like an invasion. It's going to feel like, I have stuff to do. I'm not quite done with this phone call. I'm about to walk into this meeting. I really need to get this email sent back. 
but this is the time that I previously planned and set aside to meet with God. Am I going to ignore him more or am I going to choose to embrace him? I loved Pete's story about the time he spent with the Trappist monks in Massachusetts. I've never done that. I love the idea. It's kind of on my spiritual bucket list someday to get away probably once my daughter is out of the house and I have a little more room to be away without just abandoning my wife to parenthood. Uh, But in uh, Kentucky, where both of us have lived previously, in central Kentucky, uh, there is a monastery, which at the end of this chapter, he quotes Thomas Merton. It's where Thomas Merton used to live and where he really did his ministry and his writing and the Dalai Lama came and visited. And I think a pope at one point came and did, did like a spiritual summit there. Um, we went and visited because I have a brother-in-law who's now Catholic, but previously was kind of high church liturgical Protestant. And, uh, and we got to go to mass with them, which some Protestants would say, don't go to mass. I thought it was really cool. I was happy to worship with them. I knew who I was worshiping. I don't know who they were, but I was talking to God directly. Um, and it was very eye opening to me about how unpompous the whole thing was. It wasn't a parade. It wasn't a big ceremony. These men, I think in order to embrace a lifestyle of silence, because they don't talk unless they're at mealtime, they don't speak. They can sing in the mass. They read the scriptures. One of them will do a little bit of a devotional, but they don't just go, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? They don't talk. They live in their own cells. I think you have to have a lot of humility to gain that kind of discipline. I don't think you can do that as a show. You're not going to impress the other silent monks with your silence. (laughs) You're going to have to have something else that's the prize in front of you to motivate you to continue to do that. And that impressed upon me. I think that that's an idea that I've connected now looking at the um, daily schedule that they use on page 144. And I go, I don't think anybody's going to know if you get up and pray vigils at 345. I don't think they're going to know if you pray lauds at six or if you stop and pray sext at 1215. Maybe if you're working alongside them, they will, but they're already doing it. It's not going to impress them that you did it. It's the bare minimum. And I like that idea. I, I can tell you from my own experience, when I've taken a week at a time or a couple of days at a time to try to bring uh, an office of prayer into my life, where I've said, okay, for the next four days, I'm going to pray at nine, noon, three, and nine, or whatever, uh, that it's cool for one day and it feels really good. And I try to find ways to slip it into conversation, if I can be honest. After that, nobody cares. It's not impressive. Nobody wants to hear about it. I have to decide it's valuable to me. And that takes some humility that is missing, especially when I'm in the blizzard. I got myself in the blizzard because I didn't have any humility. I got myself in the blizzard because I believed I could fix it all, save it all, change it all, do it all. And so it's a, it's a, both fists are swinging on you in this way. You have to willingly embrace humility to have the discipline and you have to gain some maybe humiliation or humility the hard way uh, in order to be open to something like this. And I think, you know, we've talked about lots of spiritual disciplines in the last few months. And I think fasting is the thing that comes to mind there in terms of, and, and Christ calls us out in the gospels of don't, don't do it because you're looking for a show. Don't do the the daily office because you want to impress your spouse or your kids or whatever. That's not what it's about. And Pete even talks to that on page 143. He says, you're not going to God to get something, but to be with someone. And gosh, like I just, that washes over me and sinks into my heart in such a way that you get to be with the creator of the universe. And I feel like maybe that's even cliche even just to say that, but to think about, you know, these monks getting to to reside with their creator and be with their God at those times each day. I mean, there's a part of me that's jealous for that. Here, I could create it every single day of my life. I don't, but I am still jealous for that time and for having that discipline, like you're saying. And, and I completely agree about the humility factor. There's there's no doubt that that is quickly washed away and out the window if you're just trying to impress your fellow monk buddies by, you know, getting up a little bit earlier because they've already been up since 3 a.m. Absolutely. 
I want to move us a little further forward in the chapter. Uh, I'm looking at page 146, and I think that I'll just be really transparent with you. Um, I have a, a bracketed quote from Pete here about the middle of the page where he says, it is the rhythm of stopping that makes the, quote, practice of the presence of God, to use Brother Lawrence's phrase, a real possibility. So I want to read that without the kind of aside in there. It is the rhythm of stopping that makes the practice of the presence of God a real possibility. Now, it doesn't do the work for us, but it makes us able to be with God and to connect with God. And that was such a convicting idea for me. It's the reason that we started with silence and solitude as a church. I mean, we, I could have preached Sabbath first. I really wanted to. I think it's the most revolutionary. And just based on my prayer and the preaching calendar, we probably aren't going to get to it until 2024 at the soonest. And it hurts to know that there's a whole nother year out of, in front of us where we're not going to, I'm not going to get to teach my favorite practice, but that's okay. It's not about me. I don't need to do that. Uh, in a way, that's a discipline for me to wait until the right time. But I thought we've got to build a foundation here. If I look back at my own spiritual journey, starting with quiet is where I needed. I didn't start with that. I started with other disciplines, but none of them clicked until I carved out space. And the quiet was that space. And the alone with God was that space. And so to take that to a larger scale and embrace a 24-hour period, or like Pete talks about, many Sabbaths in the form of the office of prayer, is is probably likely going to be what is most transformative to us. It is, again, the rebellion against the pace of our culture to go slow, to stop, to take breaks. Pete says the daily office practice consistently eliminates any division between the sacred and the secular in our lives. You know, I'll, I'll be transparent and say it because I know we want to jump into some of the practicality of the daily office. But the one thing as I was reading through the monk schedule that stuck out at me it was that a few years ago as a shift worker, I listened to a podcast that was done by a PhD, incredibly smart man who studies sleep and he's a, you know, brain, brain surgeon or whatever. And he was emphasized in the need to get seven to nine hours of sleep. And so my very initial reaction when I read the monk's daily list was, I'm not going to get seven to nine hours of sleep if I do that, which right away strikes at the trust quotient that I fail to have that if I'm doing this thing, it is God will provide. God will be there in the fatigue. God will be there in the night. God will be there in the dark. And so I just I just had to throw that in there as as my initial reaction to what would happen if I did this. Yeah, one of my favorite moments between Jesus and his disciples is similar. In John 4, famously, Jesus encounters the woman at the well in Samaria. But what puts Jesus at the well by himself is it's lunchtime. And he sends his disciples into the town, presumably the same town that this woman is coming out of to go to the well, to go get lunch for everybody. And he has this encounter with the woman at the well. She, I believe, repents and changes and goes and starts telling people in town about Jesus. And the disciples come back in time to catch the end of the conversation. And we get John's account that they're all kind of thinking these snide comments in their head about Jesus is talking to that one. Well, thankfully, they don't open their stupid mouths, but they're thinking the wrong things. And then there's this great moment where they say to Jesus, they all turn to each other and go, did one of you bring him lunch? Like they're all kind of like, who fed Jesus today? Like that's kind of their responsibility as his apprentices is to make sure he gets lunch. And Jesus interrupts him and he says, I have food that you don't know about. That, that right there to me is a, is a life-changing moment if you catch what he's saying. And I think it's what you're saying. Does God want you to neglect the needs of your body? No, he built your body. He put you on an earth with food for you to eat with soft places for you to lay your head, a day and night cycle to encourage you to sleep and get up. All of that's good and right. 
but should we be deciding for ourselves exactly the dose of those things that we need and doing everything in our power to manipulate the other 16 hours a day to make sure that those eight go exactly right? I mean, if you're two weeks away from a mountain marathon, yeah, be a little bit of a legalist, that's fine. But I think in general, we should have that attitude. God, I'm going to do my best to be responsible, but I'm not going to let even the needs of my body separate me from you. If the only way I can be with you is I get six and a half hours of sleep at night, then great. That's going to be what I have to do. And maybe my Sabbath is going to have a big long nap in the middle where I catch up. And for, for something that's practical, we had one of our boys came down two nights ago with a bloody nose in the middle of the night. And I know we have so many parents are out there who are listening and that stuff happens. And in the middle of the night, I wake up and I, he's going, psst, psst. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's great. I, I get it. But, but it makes me immediately start to think, oh no, I'm not going to get enough sleep. And I've got that really important phone call. And then I need to write that thing that I got to do for that thing that tomorrow and all these things. And I start to worry and I start to forget to trust. But like you're saying, there is, there is food, there is water that we don't know about that we can abide in and use as our sustenance. And, and we don't need to, we don't need to have panic in those moments. And he really speaks to the point, you know, you make, you make the, the, the joke about, Mount Marathon or whatever. And as a runner, I can for sure relate to being legalistic with my training and my diet and my schedule and stuff. But Pete talks about the regular remembrance of God and that, and this really resonated with me in a lot of ways as we start to talk about the practicality of the daily office, that it's not the length, it's not the explicit details of how you do the practice of the daily office. It does. You don't have to follow the Trappist monks in, in uh, you know, in a certain fashion, it can just be whatever you make of it. And that is the best thing that it can be. And, and just the regularity and the consistency of it is really what he drives home. Yeah, I totally agree. It brings to mind, I think an analogy that I shared the last time we did the podcast together, but you think about family worship and people are worried, you know, do I have to do this deep, intense study with my kids? And it won't be any one session that your kid remembers. It'll be the fact that you made it a priority. That applies to the daily office as well. Probably no one round of 10-minute prayer with God between meetings is going to be the turning point in your life. But applied over many, many years with consistency, you'll be a different person than you would have been. And it'll be that time spent with God that's meaningful, even if you haven't necessarily taken away some brilliant, clarifying new thought or revelation from God to you. So Pete gives us four elements, Philip, that he walks us through in terms of the daily office or what, what is the term that you used for it again? Fixed prayer? Fixed hour prayer. Fixed hour prayer. Yeah. And so would you walk us through the four elements that he, that he lays out here? Yeah. And I'm going to go quick because again, I don't want to, I don't want to rewrite the chapter that he wrote, but step one to him is stopping. And that's probably as far as some people get. We talk about the wall in silence and solitude and how we bounce off of it. I think we bounce off of stopping when it comes to the daily office. We want the daily office to be something I can integrate into my hectic pace, not something that's going to invade and potentially disrupt my hectic pace. And I think it will. Uh, I think that number two, centering can only happen if we've really stopped. You're never going to center yourself if you're still flying through life task after task after task, phone call after phone call after phone call. I'll say this too, the endorphin rush for a workaholic like me, the, the feedback, the positive feedback loop of getting things done is not what it means to be centered. It's not that I feel really good about my day. It's that I'm actually connected to who I am and to who God says that I am. And that's different. I have to reject that cheap, feel good, sort of candy coated high of getting a lot done 
and instead choose to, to use the bullet points that Pete lays out on 148, be attentive and open. Instead of thinking about the next thing I'm going to do and how fast I can get it done, I have to look at myself in the mirror. I have to stop, physically still myself, straighten my body, breathe slowly, allow my heart and breath to sort of sync up. And then oftentimes I do. I close my eyes because around me is a computer screen or more than one that has email and a schedule and all my text messages and my phone is going off and I can hear other people in parts of the building. I oftentimes include, if I'm going to sit with God in prayer, headphones. I have earbuds that I got at Costco that have noise canceling in them and I slap them in my ears even if I don't even have anything playing. It just muffles and kills the sound so that I can take a second and almost mentally create like put, just put a tent up in the middle of my day and go into that tent and have quiet. I love, 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 love the portion on breathing. Uh, he says that when you find your mind wandering, allow your breathing, allow a natural part of your body, see your body as a gift from God to bring you back. As you breathe in, ask God to fill you with the spirit. As you breathe out, exhale and let go of what is sinful and false and may not be of him. So I was reading this uh, for the first time on a hunting trip out with uh, one of our other lay elders, Ian, and uh, I actually read it out loud just so that we could both benefit from from this practice. And I then took it with me and, and, and went out that day to hunt, and I ended up by myself. And you're sitting in the middle of creation where there could be literally any animal that you can imagine in the wilderness of Alaska. There could be wolves, there could be grizzly bears, there could be moose and goats and whatever else. Uh, and, And we've seen most of those in this area. And as I went into the practice of the breathing and closing my eyes, I... I, it was this carnal moment where it was the, the human aspect meeting the divine of, boy, I'm going to close my eyes right now. And literally, there are probably four things out here that could kill me within a matter of 10 seconds. But I'm going to close my eyes. And guess what I had to, had to remind myself was that I had to trust. And I, and I just really felt that in that moment of breathing in and breathing out with my eyes closed, trying to take in Christ in those breaths and then breathe out all the things that were distractions, that were sinful, that were whatever, that were contrary to what I was trying to do. But that moment of trust really, you know, hit home for me out there in the wilderness where all these things could kill me, but I was ultimately trying to practice this. Yeah. Uh, He also talks about uh, another tool in your toolbox here is what's been called the Jesus Prayer. This actually comes to us from Eastern Orthodoxy, which is probably a tradition few folks in our church have encountered very much, if at all. Uh, I love this prayer. It's a prayer that I pray often and regularly out loud. It is the thing I fall back on if I have nothing else to say to God. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, if you're not careful, it can become the rosary. Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed are you, blessed are you. You know, you can just mumble your way through it and check it off the list. But if you remember that you're speaking to Jesus, it's everything you need to say. It's you telling him, you know who he is, you know who you are, you know what you need, and you know he can give it to you. And then it's actually making the ask. That's where it makes it personal as you're saying to him, have mercy on me. That takes humility, Mike. There have been days of my life as an adult where I don't think I need any mercy. I pretty much got everything right today. I helped everybody I could. I've got my crap together, you know, if you will. And I don't need any mercy. If I can admit to God that I need mercy, there's all the humility I need for the day. Number three is silence. Uh, I love Dallas Willard, so I'm going to read this pseudo quote from him that he called silence and solitude the two most radical disciplines of the Christian life. And they are. 
the choice to be apart from people, to allow the after image, to use Willard's analogy from the divine conspiracy, to fade and to silence and close yourself to the inner and outer voices that you have and are listening to and simply tune yourself into God. To quote Nowen, without solitude, it is almost impossible to live a spiritual life. And I agree. And so I'm not going to spend any more time selling that to you. I think I've done my best. And the fourth point that he makes here as part of this practice is scripture. And I don't think we need to go into that one too deeply. Uh, the Psalms, he really emphasizes that you can get into and really let those guide you. I mean, there's a, there's a plethora of resources out there to guide you through meditation on scripture or, you know, whatever, whatever your favorite verse is, whatever your favorite book is, worship music that goes along with it. I think for me, Philip, the biggest takeaway in this specific part is if it helps, do it. If it does not help Mm -hmm. you, do not do it, including the entirety of the daily office. And I can tell you as a guy who was raised as a Catholic, having somebody list this as permission to say, hey, if this is working for you to grow your relationship with Christ and to focus more on him and glorifying him, do it. If it's not, cut it out. And I just, I, I mean, that just screams beauty to me because that's permission to make this thing work for you so that you can lift up your father and be more in relation with him. So I'm glad you brought that up. We didn't talk about our notes here before we recorded, but that's important to me to say, as a person who is vocationally a pastor, who carries a lot of spiritual authority in people's lives as the primary preacher at our church, uh, we live in a time in 2022 when there's a whole lot of spiritual abuse happening. And in, and in small ways, little cuts, little spiritual paper cuts that I think people just sort of look the other way and go, well, that pastor's a little bit gruff. He's a little direct. You know, God's still working on him too. But we've started to tolerate, I think, churches that allow manipulative, abusive personalities into the pulpit, into the highest level of leadership. And what those people do is they build new systems for us. They almost create new religions where they value and, and push down your throat every Sunday you got to be evangelizing so many times a week or so many times a day, or you got to feel guilty if you don't, or the key to your future going well is the way you parent your kids, or you have to vote a certain way. Or if you were more like the reformers, you'd be this way. Or if you could really dig into the 1689 London Baptist confession, you'd be this way. And I think that what I like about the way Pete writes is he's a guide and he's very pastoral, but he's giving you back your agency. He's saying like, I don't want to try to play a game with you where we both act like you can't think for yourself you're going to think for yourself anyway. So let me just preemptively let you know, that's a good thing. God made you the way that you are. He is in control. And Pete, and I agree with him, is not too scared to hand you back your own decision-making and say to you, try it. Remember what the objective is. If your objective was to run Mount Marathon and my training program that I gave you caused you to come in last place, I would be a fool to say, well, it was, sorry, that's just the only way to train. You would go find somebody who has your body type, your BMI, who eats like you do, who sleeps the same amount as you, and you'd build a new program to get you to the goal. And our spiritual lives work the same way. One of the best takeaways from my whole spiritual journey across the last couple of years is realizing that I have the freedom to say, this is a spiritual practice that does nothing for me and I hate it. And in 10 years, I might love it. Like I'm going to change and grow. That's fine. But for today, I don't have time to waste practicing a bunch of junk that doesn't do anything for me. I'm going to find whatever it is that allows and facilitates me remembering that I live in God's presence and acknowledging him. So I love that you brought that up. 
and, and he even pulls on that just a little bit more by saying that if maybe if we do just a little bit more, like you're saying as a pastor, but certainly anybody out there can relate that if we pray a little bit more, or maybe if I gave a little bit more, or if I sacrifice more of my time, he says, remember grace, which reminds us there is nothing we can do or not do that would cause God to love you any less than he, any more than he does right now. And I just, yeah, I just think that that's such a healthy reminder for us that grace is always there and it doesn't matter how you could be a Trappist monk. You could, you know, run Mount Marathon. You could do what any of these things and you could run them to a legalistic extreme. That's not the point. The point is that it's connection with God the Father and being in his presence, like you're saying. And so I think that that's a great way to wrap up that one. And I know you are desperate to dive into Sabbath keeping. I'm not desperate, Mike. And I am glad you said that because that's the anchor of the chapter. Without that statement made, this is a chapter that's about you fixing yourself. With that statement made, that's the reminder that you need. I'm only doing this through the power of the Spirit, and that's why I have the freedom to experiment and try different things, because there's grace for me, and I'm not going to mess it up. Sabbath is important. I think Sabbath is really, really important if you're a person who works at a church, serves as a missionary, attends a seminary, goes to a Bible college, or even if you're highly involved in your congregation. Because if what you're assuming is going to happen, and I'm going a little off script here from the book, but I want to make this point. If what you're assuming is going to happen is that by going to church on Sunday and being wildly busy helping execute the program of a church, that that's going to bring rest to your spirit, you're dead wrong. You're dead wrong. And you can try it for decades. And what you'll do is you'll end up resenting and hating the church. And you'll never naturally look inside yourself and say, is there any other way that I could potentially find an oasis in the desert of my week where I could be with God and be with myself and be with the people I love? For Pete, he defines the Sabbath as 24 hours in which you do nothing related to work. I think a little bit later in the chapter, he talks about how our objective is to not advance the work that we have, like to not make progress necessarily. That's been very helpful for me because especially for my wife and I, what we consider to be work is really different. On my Sabbath, I have an iPhone. Uh, For now, we just had a conversation where I told you I'm pretty much over it. But for now, I have an iPhone, and it has Do Not Disturb settings, and you can go into the settings on your phone, and you can build different sets of Do Not Disturb, and I have one called Sabbath, and I use it for 24 hours. And what it means is I get no notifications on my home screen from anybody but my wife. If you call me, I won't even know you called me until I turn the Sabbath setting off. I won't know you left me a voicemail. I won't know that I have a text, an email. Slack is our sort of inter-office communication platform that we use. I don't get any notifications from that. And it's been really good for me and helped me, but I still have to have the right heart about it. Simply preventing other people from getting inside the gate that I've set up does nothing to align my heart with God or his will or his word or anything that I need to hear or understand. Um, Mike, I don't know for sure, but I assume that you highlighted something in the range of 152 or 153 uh, where God was chewing on and talking about, um, not God, where Pete was chewing on and talking about Eastern culture, Western culture, how when we don't succumb to the pace of the world around us, it's an act of rebellion in God's name or that Sabbath is not about us. Do either of those things jump off the page at you? I think for me, what I what I pulled in these pages was that we are designed to rest, uh, that God worked and we worked and we can work and God rested and we are to rest. And it's it's really simple when you boil it down to those things that we are basically imitating our creator as his creation. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I really, I don't know if I would go any farther than that. It's just to say that, again, it, it almost feels like Pete, kind of like you said, giving you ownership or, or permission um, to to just 
do the thing that we're created to do, but it, it's so countercultural to say, yes, go rest. Like it's, it's, you know, we preached on Sunday that, you know, Jesus came and he was countercultural. He didn't try to be countercultural. He just was countercultural. And that's what I really felt that resonated in this portion of the chapter was these practices are not something that we will easily be able to pick up. I mean, iPhone, the, the technology is great that it's developed those functions, but again, it still is your heart. It still is coming back to the, the intent behind this stuff and, and why we would rest in, in the way that we are designed. That's right. Uh, toward the bottom of page 153, Pete quotes Eugene Peterson, who said that Sabbath is not primarily about us. It's not really even about how it benefits us. It's about God, and it's about how God forms us. Peterson says, I don't see any way out of it. If we're going to live appropriately in the creation, we must keep the Sabbath. And I want to read quickly from Mark chapter 2. I thought this showed up in the chapter, but I can't find it today. Uh, In Mark 2, Jesus does some stuff on the Sabbath that people don't like. (laughs) He and his disciples basically have a snack as they walk through a grain field. And when Jesus is challenged and attacked by some Pharisees about how could he do that, he makes the statement in Mark 2.27 that the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. In other words, if the Sabbath begins to rule over you, it's not a Sabbath anymore. If it's a tool in your toolbox that allows you to reset and realign yourself with who God is and what his will for your life is, then use it and do it. And if that means for you Pharisees that you don't need to eat grain heads on Sabbath, then don't. But for me and my guys, we're good. We're as aligned with God as we were before we had the snack. Another thing I wanted to share is Pete talks about the the pervasiveness of Sabbath. If you practice it weekly, the impact that it would make for you. And I did the math. If you were to practice one Sabbath a week for 80 years, which assumes you're a Christian for 80 years, so I guess you'd probably have to live to be 100, that would be 11 years, five months, and five days of Sabbaths. I would like that much Sabbath. Are you open to that? I, I am now. Initially, when I read this chapter, I was like, absolutely not. I have too much to do to do nothing for 11 years. Are you kidding me? And now I'm like, give me more. Give me 48 hours of Sabbath. Give me 72 hours of Sabbath. So you may or may not even know this, but you are one of the people who I really felt challenged me on my Sabbath and my Sabbath keeping. And so, you know, I know we have uh, a variety of listeners, but uh, for those that don't know, uh, until just recently, I was a rotating shift worker. And so this was an extremely, I mean, I cannot put it in hard enough words that it was was incredibly hard for me and my family to find this 24-hour period in a week when I would go from day shifts to night shifts back to evening shifts. And like I said, I know we have folks out there who are doing the same thing. And so uh, you're desire to follow this and your excitement about it when you would keep your Sabbath and you would relay that to the other elders. And I just asked you some questions and just kind of probed around the idea of it. And then of course read this. Uh, and I, and it just, it's not easy and it is countercultural. And, and Pete talks about it here on 154. What is important is to select a time period and protect it. He says with an exclamation point. And that's what, that's what we started to do in my family was we just found a 24 hour period and we had to look at it days in advance. We could not just start to walk into the week and say, well, maybe it'll be Thursday. We had to project it out maybe even weeks in advance to say on this week, it's going to be Tuesday. The following week, it'll be Friday. And then the next week it'll be Sunday. And it was a blessing. And I think otherwise, like we said, we would have stopped doing it, but boy, was it, was it, was it a challenge to dial that in? And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking back on it now. I'm thankful that we did, but it is not an easy thing to start with. (coughs) Pardon me. 
Um, Mike, I'm going to go further off script here and I'm just going to really rapidly summarize the pieces of a Sabbath. I want to spend the last five or six minutes with you actually talking about what we do when you and I Sabbath. I think that's going to be the most helpful here. The book is good. It gives great boundaries. And if you haven't read this part, please read it. Please take the time to read through and ask God where and how you could begin to carve out rhythmic rest. Again, the first piece of Sabbath, similar to the daily office of prayer is to stop Uh, He recommends then that you rest. I agree with that. I think similar to silence and solitude, there's going to be an element of physical rest that's going to feel a little bit maybe greedy or shallow at first, but is actually very, very important to your physical and mental and spiritual well-being. Number three is delight. Uh, Delighting in the Lord, finding ways to plan into your schedule room and margin to move more slowly. When I Sabbath, one of the things I Sabbath from is multitasking. I don't allow myself to do more than one thing at a time. I don't walk and text. If I'm in the grocery store and I get a text from my wife, I stop my feet, answer the text, and then continue grocery shopping. And it's amazing what you learn, Mike, about how much longer your life takes to live when you only do one thing at a time. It's challenging. And then number four, you contemplate. And that's the piece for me that becomes automatic on the Sabbath. If I do the first three, I'm a thinker, and I wind up just going, why is this the way that it is? Why am I... Why does it take me three hours to grocery shop for nine items when normally I can get this done in 10 minutes? Well, I'm not having a panic attack in the middle of it. That's part of it because I'm not also answering email and trying to schedule a meeting and fix a person's problems and figure out the recipe and my phone's about to die and my daughter's having a breakdown and my wife is, needs me home 10 minutes ago. And so, I, yeah, that's been a helpful thing to me. When it came to building my Sabbath, I want to make sure I say this for all of our listeners because this is going to go online forever probably. It took me about six months, about 24 tries before I liked Sabbath. This has been really probably aside from my marriage, the only commitment that I've ever made to God that I said, come hell or high water, I'm going to do this for a set amount of time. Now with my marriage, there is no, if it doesn't work, I'll go another way. But with Sabbath, I really, I told God, I'm going to do this. I've heard everybody that I care about and trust in ministry tell me this is the missing piece. If I don't do this thing, or if I give up on it too soon, I'm never going to know. And so I did. I, I tried hard to press into it. I, at first, I would do a Sabbath maybe once a month, and then I wouldn't think about it, or I'd get too busy, or I'd feel unrealistic. When I finally pulled my wife in on it and told her how important it was to me and that I wanted to try it, she was very supportive immediately, and we started working together to make that space for me, even though she wasn't personally practicing Sabbath at the time. Um, I probably started on this um, roughly beginning of November 2021, so it's been just past a year for me. And it didn't start to be really fun and rewarding until about the beginning of this past summer. Uh, There were bright spots. There were moments I tried to celebrate that were really helpful to me. It has now gone from something I have to work really hard to fit in to something that I really seriously miss and notice when I don't do it. It's become significant. And I told you, Mike, before we started recording, there were two broad thoughts I wanted to share. And then I'm going to be quiet and let you talk about yours. But two things for the listener to know to expect. One is... If you plan to carve out 24 hours a week to give to God without any other interference, you're not going to be able to just displace all the things you used to do on that seventh day of your week. You're going to find that the Sabbath will affect all seven days of your week because you can't just airlift one seventh of your responsibilities out of your Thursday and then sprinkle them across the other six days. You don't have time. You're already maxed to the margins those other six days. So you're going to end up having to clean out the cracks and crevices of all seven days of your week in order to make time for this, which makes sense because in the Old Testament, the Jewish people spent most of the day before Sabbath in preparation for Sabbath. 
it was almost a 48-hour event. Now, 24 of it, they were at rest, but it took them a long time to get ready and then to recover on the backside. Number two is no matter how good of a win streak you're on with Sabbaths, eventually you're going to have one that you're going to hate. You're going to drive yourself crazy. There's going to be too much to do. You're going to be an emotional wreck. You're going to feel bored. You're going to go, this is what I remember. I've been bored since the 90s. Now I'm bored again. I don't know what to do with myself. You got to get through that and you got to let that be okay. God does not promise that this is a magic spell that's going to make you super happy. It's good for you even when you don't like it. Some days you're going to want to eat your vegetables. Other days you're going to have to just grit your teeth and get them down. And it's not just a day off. Pete refers to that as a bastard Sabbath where you're just targeting that you just need a day off and you're going to kind of do some of those things that you want to do, but you may, you know, dabble in some of the other stuff that you shouldn't do and, uh, and you're not really focused on God. And so it's not, you're not supposed to make a bastard Sabbath out of it. And I just thought that that was a really good point. Two other things that came to mind while you were talking there is that, uh, Pete really spent some time talking about, how this is a commandment. This is not just something that we should do haphazardly or that like Philip's saying, if you uh, want to, uh, you know, take a break from this practice every once in a while or, or, you know, only if it fits, I've got too many emails to do today. It's a commandment. It's actually the longest commandment. He goes on to talk about how it's the longest commandment of all the commandments. Uh, the part that you talked about being compl- contemplative, Philip, in the in the grocery store and not doing multiple things at the same time. It reminded me of yesterday's sermon where we talked about Jesus never being late and never being in a hurry. And I just, I think part of me really wants to focus on that concept this week, that he was always at peace and he was always at at the right time. And that's that's how our Sabbath should be. It should give us that same level of peace recognizing that the world does not revolve around us, that those emails, that the work, that the study, that the paper, all those things are still in God's hands and in his control, that you can go to sleep if you need to go to sleep, that you can take a break if you need to take a break, whatever it is, but that you are not in control. And that goes back to the trust quotient that we talked about before. So how does the Ottenweller family manage a Sabbath? Um, So we've probably not been going at it as long as the Coleman family, but I think we've probably been in it for about five months now. And again, started when I was in rotating shift work. And um, so, yeah, I think we did have to look out a long ways on the schedule and try to pick a day of the week that would work best for us. Um, Much like you, Philip, I also need to turn off my phone completely. Uh, I will use it as a distraction, and I'm sure that I have some form of addiction to technology. And so I need to basically shut it all the way down. I mean, turning the screen totally black is great. I usually do what you do and to go into a do not disturb except for Karen to be able to reach me. Um, and then I try to pick out, you know, a few things that I want to do that day ahead of time. And so, uh, I love that Pete talks about if it's something that replenishes you or gives you joy, do those things. And so for me, that's working out. I love to have a super long run, two hours or whatever running is amazing for me. And this time of year it's skiing, but I love going out and doing that. And, you know, as a child, I used to hear, oh, well, you can't, you you need to rest on the Sabbath and, you know, kind of a weird manifestation of like that rest has to be like just sitting still in a chair. No, that's not what I, I think the intent is here. And so I go out and that to me is a very deep, rich, spiritual prayer filled 
opportunity to be in creation, to be free, to be alone. And, and yeah, so there's all sorts of disciplines that I can practice in those times. Um, and then usually we have some kind of family activity where we're trying to read something together and that's really intentional time. And we set that time aside with our boys. Um, but then for me, it's also just picking out something that I want to read just for myself. And so, uh, those are a few of the things that I do to try to get into Sabbath space. I always think it's a little bit different from week to week, but, uh, those are a couple of the practices that help us to set ourselves up for success. I try to essentially use the model, uh, kind of the stages of silence and solitude as my, as my pattern for Sabbath. So I start with rest. And, uh, for me, most of the time, my Sabbath begins somewhere after 6 PM on Wednesday and whatever time it starts, that's when it's going to end on Thursday. Now there's a couple reasons for that. If I do a full 24 hours that starts in the morning, I find that I tend to convince myself that I can work as late as I want to the night before. And then my Sabbath really begins with going to bed, which isn't really Sabbath because then I wake up and I have this sort of hangover because I stayed up too late and I worked too long and I maybe didn't, wasn't disciplined to set all the, the barriers in place that I needed to. In a perfect world, uh, it's Monday today, in 48 hours, we'll have a covenant member meeting. And when I go home from that, my Sabbath will begin for the week. So I'll get home around 8.30 or 9. Um, if I need to, I give myself up to a couple of hours to finish any really pressing work stuff because Thursday is not a day off work for the rest of the staff. So if I have to, if I know somebody's waiting on me, it's going to be their last work day tomorrow. I might stay up a little bit later to get one or two things done. But really, the first thing that I do as part of my Sabbath is I stop and I pray, but it's not a long prayer. It's a, okay, God, I'm back. I'm here to be with you. I want to focus on you. And then I'm almost immediately assaulted by all of these thoughts and feelings that are built up inside me. And so what I do, first thing, is I usually play video games on Wednesday night for an hour or two. I play FIFA or I'll play a game that has a story. I'm not into shooters really. I like stuff that tells a story and is more single player because I'm an only child, go figure. And so uh, I do that. And what I find is I, I, I decompress. I mean, I, emotionally and spiritually it has nothing to do with what I'm focused on, but it's like by locking my eyes and my will into something that's so low pressure, but is still engaging. Like I just naturally come unfurled. I think of uh, if you have a receipt wadded up in your pocket, doesn't matter how small you wad it up. If you set it on the counter for a few hours, it's going to just expand. It just wants to. It won't ever lay itself flat. You're going to have to do the work to do that. But some of those wrinkles are going to come uncompressed. And so I do that. And then as I've kind of just reached this state of like calm where I'm good, I'm a little bit separated from work. I did something fun. I'm tired. Then I will go to bed. And I usually do the prayer of examine before bed where I ask myself, where was I today? Where was God today? Was I with him like I wanted to be? Confess and repent where I need to say thank you for the blessings of the day and then try to go to sleep. And I usually fall asleep by reading a novel on my Kindle. Just some, I'll make it two pages in and go to sleep. I wake up the next morning, usually without an alarm. Sometimes if I know that there's a specific practice I want to engage in, I will wake up at a certain time. But usually, naturally, even in the winter here, I'm up by 10. I just can't sleep later than that. So I get up. I make myself eat. I don't immediately go on to the TV. And usually that morning time is where I'm going to do any prayer, writing if I need to. If I have homework from my counselor, I usually do it on my Sabbath because it's me and God time. Um, I might read something that's about spiritual growth, like the book that we're in now. But I don't let myself look at sermon scripture. I don't let myself read any commentaries. If I have a great idea about the sermon and I can tell that it's pivotal, I will do a voice recording really fast just to get it flushed and move on. But I try not to even do that. I try to, again, 
practice trust and say, God, if you need me to know this, I'm going to think about it again tomorrow and I'm going to be fine. Um, I'll try to do a movie or a nap in the afternoon. Those are kind of interchangeable for me. Uh, a little bit of physical activity. I like to go to places with big crowds and just be anonymous. So I love to go to the mall or if there's like an event in town where I can just go and walk. Oftentimes, if I want to read for an extended period of time, I'll go to a coffee shop. If I stay home, I just tend to get distracted by stuff that needs my attention. And of course, I'm explaining this during the school year. If it was the summer and Elizabeth was home, usually Andy and I are in sync with the Sabbath and we actually bring Liz along for the ride. We don't try to over-spiritualize it for her because she's not a Christian that we know of. She's never said that she is, uh, but we do think it's still healthy for her to have a rhythm of rest. Biologically, it's good for her to have a little bit of time. So we'll do that. And then once I know that I'm within an hour or two of my Sabbath ending, I try to end it the same way I started it. I just try to pray and acknowledge to God, hey, this is what I think happened today. I tried to be open to you, work in my life, bless my marriage, bless my people, You know, take a few hours to do that uh, while I'm doing other things. And then once I hit 24 hours, I'm done. I punch back into everything. I usually give myself about 90 minutes to check email, to check Slack updates, especially if there's a meeting coming up the next morning. But for those 24 hours, I give myself way more margin to do entertainment, to just physically rest. Uh, I'm not lazy. I don't want to be a slob and I don't ignore other people. But the things I tend to Sabbath from are multitasking. I Sabbath from decision-making because that's a lot of where my stress comes from. I Sabbath from leadership so I don't feel pressure to have to take these thoughts and concepts and invade my wife's world with them. I used to do that early on, and she was like, I don't like when you're on Sabbath because you just lecture me. So that's not good for me. Don't do that anymore. And so I, we changed that. So that's a little bit of a snapshot. It's taken a long time to tune that. And really what's interesting, and this is the last thing I'll say, is the longer I do Sabbath, the less I try to fit into it the more I actually exhale and just go, today is a day that will just be a day. And frankly, if Jesus comes back and the trumpet roars in the middle of my Sabbath, I think I finally reached a point of emotional maturity where I wouldn't be embarrassed that he didn't catch me working harder. And it's taken a long time to get there. I think that's beautiful. And to your point about you know bombarding Andy with leadership concepts or whatever, I going back to what I mentioned earlier about you know the point when I realized I was in my blizzard with work, I know that that's an emotional trigger for me, and so I try to be very intentional. If I feel that hit of adrenaline or, or feel my blood pressure rising, that I do not let myself engage with those thoughts and those concepts because I know that that is work-related, and I know that that is not going to grant me rest. Obviously, if my heart rate is accelerating, that's usually not restful, so I'm trying to be intentional about turning the other direction. I want to just pull on one thing, Philip, because, uh, again, you and I have bounced these ideas a lot off of each other. I, I've learned from your Sabbath about Sabbath, and I want to kind of impart this idea to the listener because this is countercultural. If you do this stuff and you are serious about it, there's going to be some people who look at you strangely. Wait, wait, you're not doing any emails today? You're not going to check your phone at all today? Through your intentionality, you have blessed me and my family because when you don't respond to Slack messages or when you are unavailable because you're reading or whatever it is, that I know you have changed your Sabbath day a couple times, I think, now in the past 365 days, just from the days of the week. And you have conveyed that to the other elders. And, and I now understand and respect your Sabbath, and I see the value and the blessing that it is to you in your life. And so what, I, what I'm what i hoping is is apparent to the listener is that 
if you do this and you convey it openly to your friends and your family and people that, you know, are long distance family, that they will learn to respect that boundary. They're going to ask a lot of questions up front, but it's worth it. It's worth it in the end. They will, if they're not Christians, they will, you know, maybe take a little bit longer to understand, but certainly if they are a believer, then it gives you a chance to tell them how good this is in your life and how important it is. Absolutely, Mike. There's a lot more that could be said about this. How do you Sabbath on vacation? What do you do when you are visiting unbelieving relatives and it happens to be that they want to stay out late the night before your Sabbath and they don't really have a category for it? How do you talk to them about that without coming across as this egotistical Christian snob? So maybe there's some questions out there. Maybe you'd like to hear Mike and I or just me or just him elaborate a little bit more on our personal practice. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and speak for him without having asked him first that at some point we can make that happen. We can get together and talk about this, I think, to greater lengths. I would also remind the listener that Sabbath and prayer are both practices that you'll be hearing about from the pulpit if you're a part of True North Church. Uh, Again, I don't think Sabbath is coming up soon, but prayer is. And part of our teaching on prayer in January will be working through the daily office, fixed hour prayer as a potential help uh, to those who are wanting to become better or at least more involved in communicating with God every day. We appreciate your time as we come up here bumping up against one hour of recording time. I want to say thanks again to Mike for carving out time on an evening away from his family to have this conversation. As always, listener, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact us at info, I-N-F-O, at truenorthalaska.com. And the last thing I want to remind you is very, very soon, this podcast will be colliding with the Sermon Podcast of True North, and we'll be remarketing that as a general online resources uh, channel for you. So if you're following along on the old 10th and L podcast stream, you're just fine. We're going to keep posting these here until we're done with this season, all eight episodes about emotionally healthy spirituality. If you would like to participate in future book clubs or hear other interviews, theological discussions, mailbag episodes, or sermon audio from True North, go ahead and find the link uh, for our general resources podcast. And that's the one that's going to stay live on into the future. So Mike, thanks again for your time and your input. We appreciate you. It's been great. I love this stuff, and uh, I hope it's been an encouragement to everybody out there. Awesome. Listener, thanks again for your time, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Until then, we hope to see you very soon. <laughs>